Hey everyone, this is Cameron. I hope you're doing well. I am coming at you audio only today. I apologize for that, uh, but what can you do? Um, hey, to jump in, we are going to be in Micah chapter 6, uh, covering the whole thing today. If you have your Bible, turn there. Um, we would normally have a scripture reader, but since we're doing these Advent readings, we won't necessarily have a separate uh, scripture reader every week. So I'm going to read the text as we, uh, as we come to the sections um, this week. Uh, but to start, I just want to talk about something that many of us have probably experienced in our relationships. Uh, I know it's applicable whether it's we're talking about a marriage, whether we're talking about a long-term friendship, uh, or maybe other kinds of relationships as well. Um, but but the goal of any any good relationship, at least one of the goals, is is intimacy over time. And and uh, one of the beautiful things about these really long term friendships is that over time you come to know deeply like what the other person really likes, what they don't like, what kinds of things sort of stir their hearts, what sort of things tick them off more than anything else, and so on and so forth. And um, you know, I remember, uh, uh, it was kind of a funny story, kind of a silly story, but for my wife's 30th birthday, so Susanna turned 30, uh, I guess about three years ago, and I had this idea for this epic party for her, and a little bit of backstory to why I thought this was such a good idea is that, um, and I'm maybe a little reluctant to share this, but in the Hager household, we eat um, really an unseemly amount of pizza, uh, if I'm being honest with you, it's, it's, uh, I, I don't know if I'm proud of it or not. There's some days I am, there's some days it produces uh, deep shame within me, but we, I, I don't know if you know this, we live in a pretty amazing sort of uh, pizza paradise here in Portland. So many good pizzas, some bad ones too, but so many good ones. And so we, uh, we partake and we indulge in pizza. I'm not, I'm not, frankly, not even going to give you specifics on how often, let's just say more than the average bear. Um, and I had this epic idea, like we're always talking to people like, well, what kind of pizza do you like? What's your favorite in town? And there's all this debate. What's the best Portland pizza? And I thought, well, man, Susanna loves pizza. I love pizza for 30th birthday. Let's have the ultimate Portland pizza party. So my idea was to invite some friends over and I was going to get like one or two pizzas from like, I, I want to say we got pizza from like 10 different places. Um, basically all the places that were in contention for the best pizza in Portland. And uh, we we're just going to eat, you know, eat slices of each of it, compare, contrast, uh, do the whole thing. Had a bunch of friends. It was fun. Uh, we had a, it was, it was a great time. I ate a lot of pizza. I didn't feel super great physically afterwards, but it was, it was a good time. And it was, it's funny that uh, after the fact, you know, I don't know, a week or two later, I remember talking to Susanna and she, she enjoyed the party. She had a great time. Obviously she's into pizza as well, but I remember her saying to me like, you know, really you threw me your ideal 30th birthday party, you know, not mine. And it wasn't, it, it actually wasn't at all like, uh, born out of frustration. I didn't, it was just kind of a matter of fact statement. And I realized immediately that she was right. Uh, in my, uh, zeal. I had figured out a, a party that really was more kind of uh, kind of up my alley than probably hers. Uh, and that's okay. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that gets relationships into trouble. This is a silly example, but this is the heart of like deep conflict. I know even in our own marriage, this is the kind of thing that produces our biggest sources of conflict. When you forget 
to pay attention to what the person across from you actually needs, actually desires. What's the right way to actually approach them? What are the things that bring them joy? And you begin to replace them with just what you want and what you assume and those kinds of things. With a pizza party, not a huge deal. Uh, but when you start getting into really serious, intimate matters uh, over a long time, that can deeply hamper a relationship. And that's to, to set up the question of like, what does God require of us in his, in our relationship with him? Um, one of the weightiest questions a person can ask, and we're going to come to it here in a minute, that t- today's passage in Micah 6 not only answers this question, uh, but it also includes sort of the keys to understanding, I think, the book of Micah as a whole, and maybe even the entire relationship between God and his people Israel throughout the entire Old Testament. So uh, no pressure to any of us to sort of figure it all out, uh, but it only holds the key to the entire Old Testament. So let's try uh, not to screw it up. Um, In fact, I'm going to pray right now. Father, uh, please be with us as we unpack your word today, as we look at Micah chapter 6. Illuminate it for us. Bring us to the truth. May it convict us. May it inspire us. And may it move us uh, to to keep more in step with you and to live uh, into your justice and your mercy and your peace more today than we did yesterday. Uh, Guide us, Lord. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as chapter six starts, um, Micah brings us to this courtroom imagery um, where the God of the universe has appeared. And he hasn't just appeared. He's appeared as the prosecutor. bringing his case against the unfaithful people of Judah. So let's read verses one and two. It sets the scene. It says, Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. So you do not want to be in this position that Israel's in. You do not want God to appear with an indictment against you. Uh, and the, the trial is serious. And he calls, it's this beautiful imagery, calling on the mountains and the hills and the foundations of the world. The idea of these ancient witnesses who've stood silently by, impartially by viewing everything that God's people have done. Uh, and in fact, they view you and they view me as well. And they stand by as witnesses as God brings his case to bear. And as the people make their case as well. So this is a serious thing. And he has two big concerns in these first few verses that he's going to bring up. The first happens in verses 3 through 5. It's that the the people have forgotten God's grace. They've, They've forgotten what he's done for them. Let's read it. It says, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. And God begins here by just pleading with his people to tell them if, if he's wronged them. Like this is emotional. He calls out, what have I done? The implication is, what have I done to you that wasn't full of patience and love and mercy? Have I not done everything for you? Have I mistreated you? Have I harmed you? And the obvious answer is no. But it's what you hear 
um, in, in the sort of emotional, devastating, like recognizable call of a husband or a wife who's poured himself or herself out day in and day out for a spouse, only to find them having inexplicably cheated or, or broken the covenant in some way. Like, how, what have I done? What have I done that you would react this way? You hear that as you read that text? And then God recounts some of the greatest, most powerful moments of grace and provision that he gave to them in the first five books, the Torah of the Old Testament. Um, he first reminds them of the Exodus, how he miraculously liberated them who were not a nation, who were not really a, a recognizable people yet. Um, he liberated them from slavery in one of the most oppressive and powerful regimes in the ancient world at the time, ancient Egypt. He, he says, remember the Exodus. And then he reminds them of, of the amazing leaders that he set up for them and, and Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He didn't leave them without leadership in that time. And then he reminds them of how he protected them from this evil pagan king, Balak, and what he had planned for them, who, who, who Balak had planned to curse them. Uh, but God had actively turned their curse into a blessing, if you remember the story of, of Balaam. And then he reminds them of bringing them across the Jordan River, that key moment in Israel's history where they went from a people without a place to a people in a place. They crossed the Jordan River from Shittim on one side to Gilgal on the other that brought them into the prosperous land flowing with milk and honey to call their own. God had been nothing but good to them, and they'd forgotten and commentator Stephen Um, I think, puts it really beautifully. He says, Micah is trying to grab the hearts of his people as he relays the words of God. Do you remember that love? The love that means I looked on you and cared for you and redeemed you and blessed you, not because you deserved it, but because I loved you? Remember that love. Um, but Door of Hope, uh, forgetting it is easy to do. For how many of us, uh, for those of us who are, who identify as Christians who are walking with Jesus, we probably have these moments uh, either uh, at when we first came to faith probably, or maybe some other additional ones as well. When we were just overwhelmed with the grace of God, we came, we came to recognize the full weight of what we deserved because of our sin. And yet what he had done in grace to save us, to redeem us. And it motivated us to, to, discipleship and spiritual disciplines and time in the word and to service and to love of neighbor generosity towards the other. But over time, these things have a way of fading, don't they? Over time, we can lose that initial zeal and we can forget. Oftentimes it's the product of just forgetting what God had done, forgetting that we deserved the opposite of the grace he gave us. We can begin to presume on it. And I think that's what's happened here with the people of Israel and the people of Judah. But the, it's not just that they've forgotten God's grace. There's another big issue that's in verses six and seven. It's that they've forgotten how to worship him. So Micah here is putting the words in the mouth of the people. He's stating their case back to God. So he's, he's, so the prophet here is writing on Israel's or Judah's behalf. He's kind of capturing what's in their hearts here. And, and here's what they say. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And this question that they start with, 
with what shall I come before the Lord? This is a massively important question. It's the one we raised at the beginning. We have to ask this for our friendships, for our, our marital spouses, and we have to ask it of God. Like, does God exist is one of the most important questions a person can ask. We say that he does. But then the next question is like, what is he like? How can I approach him? How can I please him? How can I make sure that I'm like in, in, at peace with him? Uh, that's equally as important. It's, it's no good if he exists, but we offend him daily. If he exists, how can I come before him? And their answers suggest sort of the typical answers that humans always supply. Uh, that have, since the dawn of, of every religion, we've been supplying variations of these kinds of answers. We're still supplying these answers today in 2020. The first they give is sort of, well, how about material worship of quality? What if we stick to the book? They, they say, what if, we have, what if we bring burnt offerings? And burnt offerings in Leviticus were the kinds of offerings for sin that, that burned the whole offering. It was the only sacrifice in Leviticus uh, where they wouldn't have been able to take a portion of the animal home to eat. But the whole thing had to be consumed. So it was kind of the most costly. They say, we'll give you burnt offerings, God. And so it's the, it's the quality sacrifice and the kind that you've laid out in the scriptures. And then they say, well, what about calves? And we'll, we'll sacrifice calves a year old. And yearling calves, year-old calves, they're the most valuable and the most precious. They're way, it was a way more serious financial sacrifice than a newborn calf. And so they're saying, but, but, but look, God, we, we've stuck to the script. We, we brought you burnt offerings, the most serious offerings, and, and of the highest quality. We, we gave you the best of our, of our livestock for these kinds of offerings. But then they go on. And they talk about material worship of quantity. They're like, okay, that's not good enough. Well, what if we give you thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? And you don't have to be an expert in the economy of the ancient world to know thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil. That's absurd by our standards. Like that is so much to give. And they're, they're saying, but we, we, we went above and beyond. Look how much material we gave you, God. Come on. And this is a stupid example, but it, <laughs> this image kept coming back to me as I read this verse in the movie Anchorman. There's this scene where he uh, he's just been tricked and he's read uh, a curse against his city of uh, San Diego off the teleprompter on live TV. Um, he was being pranked, but he, he just re he reads anything on the teleprompter. And everyone in the, in the city of San Diego is just distraught because the beloved news anchor has, uh, has, has said these horrible things about the city. And uh, this coworker comes in just bawling sloppy tears and he's, he's blubbering and he's so mad at Ron Burgundy for what he said about the city. And Ron is just so perplexed. He clearly doesn't know how to <laughs> even uh, relate to this guy's pain, let alone speak to it coherently he says uh, if you know something like if, if if i were just to give you some money out of my wallet would that ease the pain and that's the idea here it's like god let, let us open up the bank let us open up the wallet what like what more could you ask we'll give you we'll give you an absurd amount of money and micah's implication here in this question is of course that worship doesn't work that way um have you, have you ever tried to like make a little deal with God for him to give you something? 
like just these little quiet prayers we offer, like when we're really stressed about something like, you know, I'll, I'm going to try to be more pious for a little while. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll start serving in this way or that. God, if you'll just let me get this promotion, give me this relationship, bring healing to this particular thing. Uh, or maybe it's, uh, you know, God, okay, I, like I'll just quit indulging in this little private sin that I've been sort of hiding out and protecting. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if you just give me this, like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shape up there. Or maybe it's literally money. I'll start giving money to the church or to these charities or this cause, whatever else. Um, we can legalistically try to pay off God with anything. Um, with our money, with our time, possessions, uh, spiritual Spiritual disciplines, church attendance, tax-deductible contributions, acts of virtue, acts of virtue signaling, on and on and on and on, and totally, um, completely miss the heart of God in doing so. The religious impulse in all of us is, well, let me just, let me just pay, let me just do a couple of the magic formulas to get on the right side of this thing with God, and we'll be good. But scripture tells us elsewhere that our righteous acts are like filthy rags before him. It doesn't work that way. And, and the, de- the depraved heart of, of this line of thinking comes in the very next line. They, they've finally reached the end, the logical conclusion of, of this. I'll, you know, I'll do anything. God, just tell me how to pay you off and I'll, I'll do whatever it takes when I start feeling the heat. They say, shall I give my firstborn? They're talking about human sacrifice. Um, to be very clear, human sacrifice was repeatedly and always condemned by God throughout the Old Testament. Um, but it was a tragically common reality for many of the surrounding nations and their religious structures. This is not just a rhetorical device. In fact, there was this pagan God named Malak who, who shows up multiple times in the Old Testament who was appeased by burning children alive. And mul- at multiple times in Israel's history, the people of God found themselves wanting the, the, the favor of this evil devil of a God, Moloch, more than the true God of Israel. And they began to burn their children for his favor. This is finally the twisted heart that lies behind all of our attempts to approach God on our own transactional terms. If we reduce God to a vending machine where his laws become formulas, that if we just enter them in the right way, he's going to give us whatever it is we really want. Then we twist our relationship with the one true God of the universe to a relationship with something, something else or someone else. And where one day we wake up to find ourselves believing it right to murder, to get the blessing we feel we are owed. That's the end point of this thing. And God hates it. So that's not the answer, obviously. So what is the answer? How are God's people to approach him? Well, let's read verse 8. Verse 8 just says simply, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? He starts with, he has told you already. It, this isn't some big surprise. What, what Micah is about to say is just summarizing and bringing together what should be plain to anyone who spent time in the Bible. He's already told you. There's, there's no great mystery here, but okay, if you're that dense, I'll repeat it. Are you ready? Okay. 
Here is what the Lord requires, says Micah. To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There's three phrases here that each add this unique element to what Micah is saying. But they also like must be read together. They, they, they work together. Um, they aren't the kinds of things we can just like easily separate out into know, neat, neatly separated ideas um, for reasons that we're going to see. Um, but nonetheless, let's look at them one at a time and then we'll put them all together. So first, what does the Lord require? First, to do justice. And justice um, is a translation of the Hebrew noun mishpat, which like the basic meaning is to treat people fairly or justly or equitably. And it speaks of, of dealing punishment for wrongdoing with impartiality. Um, so no partiality in how you deal punishment. You can't favor certain groups over the others. But it, it also speaks of giving people like the protections and the concern that they are owed. Um, so it's both deals with punishment and what the good things that people are owed. And, and it, it, when you read this verse mishpat or this word mishpat, you find it in context talking about things on an individual level, just person to person and on a social level as how God's people as this set apart nation is supposed to function. It's social as well. And very importantly, um, when the word comes up that we see it's associated with several groups of people um, time and time again, where God repeatedly urges God's people to make sure that mishpat is done for them. So just listen to, for example, Zech Zechariah 7, 9 through 10. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Those four groups that that, um, that Zechariah mentions, the, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, they come up time and time again in these verses. Why? Well, these were the ones who were the most vulnerable to economic ruin and to the mishandling of justice. And those two things were together, especially in a city. If a, if a justice system becomes dependent on bribes and the exchange of money, then the poor have no recourse to actually have things handled well. Um but they, they're vulnerable to economic ruin and they were vulnerable to the mishandling of justice. And the people of God, yeah, I need you to hear this. The people of God in every time and in every place, so including our time and our place, have to ask themselves this question. Who are the people who are the most oppressed and the most vulnerable to the mishandling of justice around me? To do justice in the sense that, that Micah and the Lord himself are speaking of here, is to love, defend, and care for these people. Okay. Well, there's a second part to what the Lord requires. He says to love kindness. And kindness translates the word chesed, which can also be translated loyal love or faithfulness or goodness or graciousness, depending on the context. Uh, commentator Bruce Waltke says that this phrase, quote, adds the thought to the to the whole thing that anyone who is in a weaker position due to some misfortune or other should be delivered not reluctantly but out of a spirit of generosity grace and loyalty so to love kindness here is to possess a kind of heart that stubbornly refuses to give up on those in need of experiencing the mishpat of god so first is do justice and then this adds out of what kind of heart you do that justice out of a loyal gracious, faithful heart towards these people. 
So one deals with action and one, this one deals with the internal reality of your own heart towards these people. And then the third condition is, is walk humbly with your God. And to, when you talk about walking with God, I know this is like one of the most Christianese phrases. If, if uh, you haven't kind of grown up in the church, been around the church for a long time, you're probably puzzled when you hear people talking, saying things like, Hey, how's, how's your walk with God? Or uh, my walk with God is X, Y, Z. Um, but it's a phrase that has biblical precedent. So let's use it. Um, but to walk with God, it speaks of the gift and the privilege of intimacy with him. It, it speaks of f- fellowship. It speaks of knowing him and his heart to walk with him is to be in close relationship with him. But to do so humbly is to let him set the pace and the direction of that walk together. Like it's, it's to allow yourself to come to know and then to be shaped by his character, his will, his love. It's so, so this dovetails right back into the first two phrases we've already discussed because the kinds of justice and, and kindness that God's been calling his people to are the qualities that he himself possesses. So Deuteron- read Deuteronomy 10, 17 through 19. For the Lord your God is God of gods, Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and an awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Or Psalm 146, 7 through 9. The God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. That's God's character. And that's why to walk with him entails this kind of loving heart and just action. So how do you approach God? You do justice, you love kindness, and you walk humbly with him. And in his amazing book, Generous Justice, which I'd commend to any and everyone if you're interested in diving deeper into all of this, um, Tim Keller sums this all up this really beautiful way. He says, we do justice when we give all human beings their due as creations of God. Doing justice includes not only the writings of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially towards the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities from simple fare and honest dealings with people in daily life to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. I think that's a very good summary of Micah 6.8. And so it's not religious ritual. It's not ticking the boxes of religious performance, either through uh, quality of sacrifice or quantity of sacrifice, but it's intimacy with God that flows out into loving, just action. Wasn't that the theme repeatedly of our time in first John as well? That is what is good. That is how we approach the God of the universe. Okay, well, Micah has a little bit more to say, and let's briefly hear it. The final verses 9 through 16 say this. They tell us that punishment is coming. Verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, 
and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with bags of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies. Their tongues, their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. And so just to pause, this is sort of a recap of what we saw in chapters two and three. This sort of economic injustice is what Micah is focused on here, where there are these trick scales and weights that can cheat people out of things. This was uh, in, incredibly common and incredibly dangerous in the Old Testament world. Um, it's the, it's means by which the poor get poorer, the rich get richer, um, and God hates it. And so he's pronouncing judgment on it. It's a very violation of his mishpat. Um, verse 13, therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied. There shall be hunger within you and you shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. What you sow, you shall, you shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you've kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you've walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. So it's another word of judgment that's come, destruction that's come, that's going to come to Jerusalem. Um, we've had multiple of these throughout Micah, and here's the latest. And again, much of this has been recount. We've spent time on earlier in the book, but um, he concludes here by saying that that the kings were, the th that things were so bad that he compares the people to the evil kings Omri and Ahab, who were basically like the signature role model kings of idolatry and injustice in Israel's history a century or so before. Um, they were the ones who plunged Israel into some of its deepest darkness. And he says, what you're doing now is like them. You're like them. And so what's the penalty going to be? He talks about frustrating all of their efforts towards prosperity. And then he ends with this verse 16. He says that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. So you shall bear the scorn of my people. Judah's being judged because despite their willingness towards these extravagant outward shows of religious performance, they've refused to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God evidenced in, in, in this example here, in how they've treated the poor among them. That's what's happening. Okay. How are we doing? Uh, my guess is that there's a public couple response. There's probably multiple couple responses here. One group right now of us are probably feeling like the heat of conviction on the back of our necks right now. Um, because we know we failed to walk with God in this way. Um, we, we fail every day to approach him the way he's asked and, and we're uh, metaphorically sort of willing <laughs> to tear our cloths and, um, and cry out. Uh, but but others, others of us right now are, are, are pretty fired up right now because we're just we're excited to be talking about justice in these terms and church. And let me be very clear, that's a good thing. Justice should not be a, a, a dirty word or a weird word. It should be a deeply churchy word for us. It's something that obviously God cares deeply about, and so must every Christian. 
Um, and there are all kinds of conversations to be had about um, the way in which uh, biblical justice differs from worldly definitions of justice. Um, well, maybe well, maybe we should talk about that for a second. I think I think for those of us who are sitting here, like, yes, finally we're talking about justice. It's possible that many of us haven't deeply thought through the fact that faithfulness in this, faithfulness in doing justice on God's terms is not going to conform to our modern American political categories, which is where our minds so often go in this conversation. Let me be very clear. Doing justice can include our involvement in politics, but it's far, 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 trans, far transcends that. Um, doing biblical justice usually won't earn us the praise of our social media echo chamber because it reaches across the aisle and and it forces us to earnestly do justice on behalf of groups that will draw accusations and skepticism from our most diehard politically conservative friends and on behalf of groups that will draw accusations and concern from our most diehard politically progressive friends. Jesus doesn't play that game. Or rather we should say modern American bipartisan politics does not play Jesus's game. My guess is that at some point or another, we all fall under the condemnation of this passage. So what? So what now? So what does this mean for us on this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, which, which changes everything? Well, there's two things we have to start by remembering. One, we are not ancient Judah. So we are not the nation set apart by God under his theocratic government, beholden to the covenant God made with Moses. Uh, we get into trouble when we try to read these Old Testament texts and try to draw a straight line to modern America. Um, we are not them. This side of the cross, in fact, the whole relationship between God and his people has changed radically. Um, the kingdom of God has, has come in part, but we wait for it in full. There's no earthly country that it's, that's its representative in the here and now. Rather, the church is. And the new covenant of Jesus' blood is not like the old covenant in some really important ways. But number two, if those are things that are different, here's what's the same. The character of God has not changed. Because it does not change. And the same God who longed for his people to be these like instruments of like genuine justice, genuine mishpat in the world, motivated by deep, gracious love and intimate relationship with him. He has not changed. Listen to the way Jesus brought this same principle out in Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, because you ought to have done these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In fact, to, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God, that's basically summarized by what Jesus called the greatest commandment in Matthew 22. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who's your neighbor? Anyone and everyone that you come into contact with. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The great commandment itself is simply <laughs> walk humbly with God and then do the things towards the people around you that he requires of you. Namely, do justice. Okay. So what do we do? 
I hope you can see that the, the, the answer isn't simply, all right, let's start doing some justice stuff so that God will bring blessing and not punishment. I think that's how many of the Judahites would have been tempted to read what Micah was saying. Like, oh, okay, so you don't want child sacrifice from us. You want this. Okay, so to tell us how to do this justice, we'll just start doing that. And then, you know, the covenant, you know, we'll be covenant keepers and everything will go well for us. And da, da, da. It's a vending machine again. And it raises the question, like, how do you get out of this endless cycle? How do you get out of this endless cycle of, oh, okay, here's what God wants. So let's just weaponize that for our own personal gain. I think the only way to break that cycle and to get out of that, and the only way to deal with this idea in a fully gospel-centric way is to remember that there was one who was actually, in the words of Micah, made a desolation. There was one who actually bore the scorn of God and man, and his name was Jesus Christ. He, he was the one who did justice perfectly, loved kindness expertly and walked humbly with God intimately in a way that no one else could in sinless perfection, the way only the God man could. And he went to be made a desolation to bear the scorn of God and his people on the cross to take the punishment that every sinner deserved and to exchange that with us for his righteousness his perfect, good, holy standing before God. When you look at his grace, when you see that he's entered the courtroom to be condemned in your place, we, and we begin to understand the beauty and the magnitude of it and it actually stirs up thankfulness and appreciation, then we're free to give that to others. Because immediately when our thought goes to, oh, I better do this so that God will be happy with me so that I can earn his favor, you go, oh, wait, I, I already have that. Jesus has already bought me God's favor. He's already bought me standing with him. He's already done what is good. He's already brought me into perfect intimacy with God. So there's no race to run here in terms of earning anything. And if that's the case, well, how could I do anything but want to share that with others? How could I do anything but given the way that I have been dealt with uh, in the most generous, amazing way possible, how could I not go do that for other people? It gets us out of the rat race of religious performance and it moves us into the world of effort driven by grace and by love and by intimate fellowship and security with the God who already loves us. So Door of Hope Northeast, if you are stressed today about this, if you feel primarily the weight of condemnation, I challenge you to look at Jesus and see the grace that he's already poured out for you. And to take a moment to rest in that. And then to see, because I'm already loved, now I can go and love others. Now, because God has, has secured perfect justice for me at great cost to himself, I can go and do justice for others. Because he has already demonstrated his loving kindness towards me, I can go show loving kindness towards others. But they go, no, I, now I care. <laughs> And now I want to serve those around me. Now I want to fight for justice. Now I want to pursue goodness for the vulnerable and the oppressed because God's already done it for me. Not so that he will do it for me, but because he's already done it for me. The gospel changes everything about this. And yet the heart of God remains. So door of hope Northeast, I pray that this is an encouragement to you. 
Um, I pray that as we mature as a community uh, over the coming months and years, that we will remember this and that uh, we will never forget the way in which his radical mercy fuels our radical mercy, that we may never get those things confused or in reverse order because then we end up on a very dangerous road. But if we keep his grace front and center, then we're free to love. We're free to do justice. We're free to love kindness. And we're free to walk humbly with a God who has taken every step to be right next to us. Amen. Amen.